Welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at historical locations that are reportedly haunted. To understand the hauntings, one must first look at the history behind them, because history leaves shadows that people today can still see. Let's find out their stories together and learn some cool historical facts along the way. everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. My name is Ariel and I will be your ghost host today as we talk about some haunted places found in Washington state. I would like to thank Master Twisted from Instagram for suggesting this state as a location. There was not really a single building that had enough information that I could do an entire episode on, so I decided to make up a list of haunted locations for this episode. When I picked this list, I picked places that had more interesting and unique hauntings. I also had some listeners help out by suggesting other locations for this episode, but I did not have time to include them all in this episode, so if you don't hear your location in this episode, I'm going to make a follow-up episode maybe in a month or two down the line that'll cover more haunted locations in Washington State. So if you're one of the ones that sent me a suggestion, thank you so much. I'm recording as much as I can for this episode on the 4th of July, so while this won't be available today, I wanted to say happy 4th of July to all my American listeners. I hope that you all had a fun and safe holiday. I'm running on very limited time to make this episode. Um, I will be going on a family trip in just a few days, and I had to scramble to get this episode out there and pack, all while dealing with some family stuff so that I could get ready for in time for this trip. So I didn't have time to do the monsters moment in the beginning of this episode, so I apologize for that, but I just couldn't get it all done in time. This episode is still going to be fun, packed full of cool history and really fun hauntings, so I hope that you guys like it. Before I begin, I wanted to thank my Patreons for your support of the show. You guys help me out so much with being able to pay for my monthly fees to keep the episodes coming, as well as helping me out with the music and sound effects fees. I have a few new Patreons to thank today. I wanted to thank Melissa, Molly, Misty, and Dennis. Thank you guys so much, and your thank you cards and stickers will be out in the mail by Tuesday. I also wanted to let everyone know that I have started a travel vlog style YouTube channel. I won't be covering ghosts, but I had some listeners ask me how my Disneyland trip went, and I realized that I didn't really tell anybody that I was starting this YouTube vlog series because I filmed a ton of stuff from my Disneyland trip, and I made a bunch of videos showing what I did on my trip. So I thought if anyone likes that kind of thing, you know, you can go check it out. I have a link down below, but if that's not your thing, don't worry. No hard feelings. You don't even have to bother pressing the link. I just wanted to let you guys know that that's also what I'm doing on the side of this. I feel like I'm, I, I really like the haunted stuff. I really do. And I'm, the podcast isn't going anywhere. I've decided that much, but I also really love traveling and I love being able to do video editing and stuff like that. So I wanted to make that like another side hobby of mine. So if that's your thing, go ahead and go check out my channel. It's called Ready, Get, Set, Travel. And I hope that you guys think it's entertaining enough to stick around. Uh, keep in mind, I'm brand new to it. Just like with my podcast, I sucked when I started, so I'm not very good just yet. But already from my first Disneyland trip, I've learned a ton of stuff from my new camera. So I'm learning every day, trying really hard to make it the best travel vlog series that I can. So 
I will be going on a trip in just like two days from now. I will be on a plane to North Carolina for my first time. And I'm going to be going all over the state doing a bunch of fun things. And I'm going to film my travels and do some hotel room reviews along the way. I'm going to be gone for 11 days. So you can expect videos to start dropping in about two weeks from now. Oh yeah, and I'm also fighting allergies, so if my voice sounds funny at times, that's why. Alright, so that's all the news I had today. Let's get this episode started. This episode will take you all over the state. So I thought we should first do an overview of Washington State's history. Let's begin in 1889, when Washington officially became a state. <music> The state of Washington became the 42nd state on November 11, 1889. Its nickname is the Evergreen State. It is the only state in the United States that was named to honor a U.S. president. The capital city is named Olympia and the first elected governor was Eliza P. Ferry. Washington has excellent harbors along its Pacific coastline and this helped it become the leader of trade with Alaska, Canada, and countries located along the Pacific Rim. The Cascade Mountains run through the state and divide it into two parts. Western Washington is the wet side and Eastern Washington is the dry side. The Cascade Mountain Range stretches from Northern California through Oregon and Washington. It is made up of several large active volcanoes. In Washington, the major ones are Mount Baker, Glacier Peak, Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens that erupted in 1980, and Mount Adams. Mount Rainier is close to Seattle, Washington, and it is the highest peak in the continental U.S. The Olympic Mountain Range is on the Olympic Peninsula in the far northwestern part of the state, across the Puget Sound from Seattle. The forest here normally gets heavy rainfall, this forest is extremely dense with evergreen trees. It is considered a temperature rainforest and it is the only rainforest in the lower 48 states of the U.S. Now, before I move on to the haunted locations, I just wanted to say some interesting facts that I found out about the state. January 26, 1700, there was a huge earthquake about 70 miles off the coast that caused a 33 feet high tsunami that hit the Washington coastline. On June 6, 1889, Seattle's Great Fire started when a pot of glue from a cabinet shop caught fire. It destroyed 64 acres and burned several businesses, but miraculously, no one was killed. Famous people from Washington State include Jimi Hendrix, Bing Cosby, and Bill Gates. The state leads the U.S. in the production of apples, pears, sweet cherries, and hops. Washington is where Starbucks and Costco got their start. And Seattle Space Needle was built for the 1962 World's Fair, where its famous circular restaurant has been rotating ever since. Now that you have an overview of Washington State as a whole, let's break down these haunted locations so you can learn even more history about the area and why some of these places might be considered the most haunted places in Washington.
We'll be starting our haunted tour at the Campbell House. The Campbell House was built in 1889 in Spokane by architect Kirkland K. Cutter for a man named Amiza B. Campbell. Now, it's spelled A-M-A-S-A, so I don't know if it's Amiza or Amasa, but I'm just going to refer to him as Campbell from now on because I have no idea how to pronounce his first name. Campbell was married to a woman named Grace, and they had a daughter named Helen. Campbell was originally from Ohio, and he and his partner named John Finch came out west around 1887 to investigate mines in Idaho. They both made fortunes by investing in silver mines. Campbell came back to Idaho as a millionaire and married his sweetheart, Grace Fox, who was a school teacher. They settled in Wallace, Idaho in 1890, but by 1892, mines were closing and mine workers were starting to form unions and demand better pay and safety. Campbell was worried about violence toward his family, so he sent his then-pregnant wife, Grace, to live in Spokane. She gave birth to their only daughter, Helen, there. The Campbell House was built after Adams and Finch sold their mines for $3 million, and both men decided to live in Spokane permanently. The cost of building the 13,000-square-foot Tudor-style home was $30,000. The family's rooms were decorated with wallpaper, expensive furniture, crystal, and souvenirs of their travels. This house was super modern for the age. The house had a telephone and electricity. They had central heating and a call box for calling servants when necessary. The Campbells employed a coachman, a cook, two maids, and a gardener. Their sleeping quarters were either on the third floor or in the carriage house. The servants' dining room was in the basement, and they also had a modern bathroom installed there as well. One of the most famous rooms in the house is the gold French-designed reception room. Grace received her visitors here for 15-minute meetings. Grace was involved in women's clubs and focused on women's suffragist movement and the temperance movement. She cast her first vote for president in 1916. Grace's daughter, Helen, enjoyed many activities that were opening up to women in the early 1900s. She played tennis and golf, rode horses, and went on camping trips. She also learned how to drive a car, and back then that was quite scandalous. Campbell died from throat cancer in 1912. Helen was married at this time, so Grace continued to live in her home until her death in 1924. Helen donated the house to local historical groups after this. The furnishings of the house were sold at an auction. The house became a museum in 1926. By 1960, the house needed repair, and the house began to be restored back to its original form. Volunteers searched and recovered as much of the old original furnishings as they could. Between 1984 and 2001, major work was done to restore the structure, landscaping, and interior back to its original design. This house was on several most haunted lists in Washington State when I came across it, but after I did some research, it's not as haunted as I thought it was going to be. The Campbell House has an urban legend attached to it, however, so maybe a lot of people think it's real. The story goes like this. In the late 1900s, three of the Campbell children were brutally murdered when an intruder broke into their home during the night. The story says that a fourth child was kidnapped, but when you dive into the history of the actual house, you find out that that can't be true because the only daughter the Campbells had was Helen. But don't worry, the house is still pretty haunted. Because other than the urban legend, there are some really interesting hauntings that are attached to the house. Since this house is now a museum, many people come and go daily, and many guests have reported paranormal activity. 
Some find that once they enter the home, they feel unwelcome and uncomfortable. Some say that they feel like they are being watched as you wander throughout the home, especially when people pass by the portrait of Mr. Campbell. The portrait's eyes have been known to follow people as they pass by. Random footsteps in empty rooms and shadows in corners of the eye have been reported. Full-bodied apparitions have also been seen throughout the home. You guys all know how much I love haunted theaters. If you've listened to my previous haunted theater episode where I just covered theater in general. So I was really happy to find a theater on the list and that would be Mount Baker Theater. Mount Baker Theater was built in 1927 in Bellingham, Washington. Elaborate movie places were popping up across the United States during the early 1920s. Hundreds of theaters opened between 1925 and 1930. The theater was built by West Coast Theaters for William Fox of 21st Century Fox Studios. It was one of the last glorious theaters for vaudeville and silent movies to be built in the Pacific Northwest. With the invention of talking pictures, coupled with the Great Depression, started the decline for these theaters. After World War II, most movie palaces closed. The palaces that survived were divided into multi-screen theaters or performing arts centers. Thankfully, Mount Baker's theater remained unchanged. In 1978, the theater was put on the National Historic Landmark Registry. Fox sold the theater in 1980 to a company that wanted to divide it into a multi-screen venue. Public protests by the local community were able to stop the sale. In 1983, supporters formed a partnership with the city, county, and state governors along with local businesses and citizens. Major restoration was done between 1991 and 2003. More renovations were completed in 2008. The original pipe organ was converted to digital in 2013. Today, tickets can be purchased throughout the year for events on the main stage. Check out their website for a calendar of concerts and movies. I will link that down below. Also, the main stage room is available to rent. It seats over 1,500 people, and it is great for concerts, plays, and large community events. The smaller Walton Theater is used for public meetings and private events. The Encore Room can be used for lectures and a classroom or dinners. The purpose of the Mount Baker Theater is to enrich the community by being an important part of the Arts District in Bellingham. If you do attend any of these events, make sure to keep an eye out for the ghosts that haunt the theater. Because like I've said in previous episodes, theaters are super haunted and this one is no different. A lot of strange things have happened here, including something that I have never heard of before. A female ghost that develops a crush on male workers. Her name is Judy and she likes to wander around the whole theater, but her favorite place to hang out is in the backstage and projection booth areas. She has been known to develop a crush on the men who work as projectionists, ushers, and actors. Once she falls for someone, they will know it because he will start to hear their name being called from across the empty stage. She likes to follow them around while they're working and she has also been known to touch them on the hair, back, and shoulders. Another surprising apparition seen inside the theater is a black panther. A black shadow of a giant cat has been seen wandering through the backstage area and basement. Sadly, in the 1930s, a traveling circus performed at the theater and a Black Panther passed away in one of the back rooms. Another ghost that likes to haunt the theater is a ghost that employees call Jeffrey. Jeffrey likes to sit in empty seats and watch productions. When he is seen, he is dressed in a pinstripe suit. Other things that happen are frequent cold spots, disembodied voices, footsteps, and strange lights and orbs that have been seen all over the theater. 
Up next on our tour is the Black Diamond Cemetery. The Black Diamond Coal Company started in Northern California, about 35 miles east of San Francisco, in a small town called Nortonville. The mines at Nortonville supplied San Francisco, but the coal was found to have low quality, and they were beginning to have problems pumping water into the mines. The company moved to Washington when coal was discovered in the Cascade Range in 1880. They set up the mining town of Black Diamond about 25 miles southeast of Seattle. The mines were closed down in Nortonville, so the workers ended up moving to Black Diamond. Several mines were located along the Green River in King County. By the early 1900s, most of the 3,500 residents were immigrants from Europe. The Pacific Coast Company bought the mine in 1904. In the 1930s, oil was replacing coal, and by 1958, Pacific Coast closed the mine for good. Today, Black Diamond is a commuter community for people working in the Seattle area. It became incorporated on February 19, 1959. In 2010, its population was 4,151. The old train depot has been turned into a museum, honoring the mining and the history of the town. The Black Diamond Cemetery was created in 1884. It has over 1,200 graves and they are mostly miners. The earliest grave marker is dated March 25, 1886. One of the graves holds the remains of eight miners who were killed in the Lawson Mine Explosion on November 6, 1910. In fact, there were three major mining disasters in the Green River coal mine fields. The Franklin Mine, August 24, 1894, where 37 miners suffocated in a mine fire. Ravensdale Mine, November 16, 1915, where 31 men died in an explosion. And the Lawson Mine Explosion that killed 16 miners on Sunday, November 6, 1910. The Lawson Explosion killed maintenance men and the regular miners were not in the mine that day. Otherwise, it would have been worse. Five of the men were sadly never recovered. Originally, the cemetery was surrounded by a wooden picket fence and a double gate. Today, it is enclosed with a chain-link fence. Dying in mining accidents was so common that a cemetery fee was deducted from miners' checks to pay for the upkeep of the cemetery. The city of Black Diamond has maintained the cemetery since 1977. The cemetery is on the National Registry of Historic Places. If there was any cemetery to think that the people are probably not resting peacefully because they probably definitely didn't die peacefully, it would be a mining cemetery. And of course, the Black Diamond Cemetery is haunted. If you go walking around the 1,200 tombstones, you might have the feeling that you're not alone. You might even see a ghost horse. People have claimed to see a white phantom horse galloping through the graveyard, vanishing when it gets to the fence. You know, I loved reading Nancy Drew when I was a kid, and Nancy Drew has this one book that is called Secret of Shadow Ranch. That is my favorite Nancy Drew book of all time, and that dealt with a possible ghost horse. I won't spoil it for you, but the storyline is really good in that one. Other claims are that at night, you can see misty figures float by the tombstones. Full-bodied apparitions, the sound of footsteps have also been heard, and the swinging of phantom lanterns bobbing along and the sound of disembodied whistling. Some people believe that the bobbing lanterns and whistling is the phantom miners who still think they have to go to work. Old City Hall in Tacoma, Washington has a hot spot for paranormal activity. Tacoma, Washington started as a railroad town, and it was the western hub for the Northern Pacific Railroad. 
The old Tacoma City Hall was finished on April 23, 1893, and it was used by the city throughout 1957. It is six stories tall and has 80,000 square feet. The basement housed the city jail. A clock and bell tower was part of the original plans, but there wasn't enough money at the time since there was a depression in the 1890s. The bell and chimes were gifted to the city in 1904 by H.C. Wells and his wife in memory of their daughter who had passed away when she was 12 years old. The city of Tacoma moved its offices to a more modern building in 1959, and the old city hall stayed empty for over 10 years. In 1962, the building was almost demolished, but it was saved by a woman's club. It was remodeled in the 1970s for boutiques and restaurants, but the businesses did not do too well. It was renovated again into offices in 1980. In 2019, the Tacoma City Council allowed Surge Tacoma to purchase the building. They plan to remodel the building so that it has 40 small apartments, two restaurants, retail shops on the first and second floors, and a speakeasy in the old city jail in the basement. They also want to restore the clock tower. The developers hope to celebrate the start of 2022 by ringing in the new year with the newly restored bell tower. I'm really happy that someone's willing to try to restore it back to what it used to be and use it for new apartments and new restaurants. I hope it works out. This building used to be a really important place in the city of Tacoma, and it has also been known for another reason, to be really haunted. On the first floor was once home to a restaurant called Tacoma Bar and Grill. When it was in operation, the workers had to deal with a ghost named Gus. Gus's favorite thing to do would be to knock bottles off the shelves in the bar area. Former employees sometimes would witness bottles of alcohol being knocked off the shelves one by one in a line. The strangest part about this was the bottles never seemed to break. It seemed like Gus was just a lonely ghost because he would stop messing with the bottles once employees started to talk with him. Something that has been going on for a long time in the building is doors like to lock on their own. Employees would leave their offices to quickly grab some paperwork and they would come back to find the door had been locked and they had been locked out. Another thing that happens is lights live to turn on and off on their own. At night, paranormal activity seems to increase. Security guards patrolling the building have seen shadows dart past them down hallways. Thinking it was an intruder, they would give chase only to have the shadow disappear and find no one in the building. Sometimes lights would like to turn on and off in random rooms, causing the guards to have to go check and see if anyone was inside. And they are always empty. Many people have reported seeing this happen as they walk by on the street below. The hallways are not just active with shadow figures. Some people who have walked down the hallways have felt as if someone brushed past them when they are the only ones in the hallway. Inside what was once the old council chambers, there are residual hauntings. The sound of disembodied voices and coughing have been heard, along with the sound of someone pacing. People who have also walked by this area claim to have smelled the smell of cigar smoke, as if someone is smoking right inside the room, and when they open the door, there's no one inside. The bells inside the bell tower have to be rung manually by a rope. The bells have been known to ring at random times at all hours, night and day. There is a story of a building manager who got so angry thinking that teenagers were breaking into the building to ring the bell at night as a practical joke. He spent the night in the building to try to catch them, and after he left in the morning, there was no doubt in his mind that the place was haunted. This building was on all of the top 10 most haunted places in the state, and after doing my research, I can see why. Even when it's empty, it's still buzzing with activity just as it would have done in its heyday.
Before we move on, I just wanted to say that my voice has gotten worse. I, it might sound okay on the microphone, but it's hard for me to like articulate some words right now because I've been cracking a lot with my voice. I have really bad allergies right now, so that's why. So just full disclosure, if I start sounding like really, really gruff and deep voiced, that's why. So the next place I want to talk about is a very cool location. It's called Pike Place Market. And I really fell in love with the history of this place. I love places that started basically from nothing and grew up and became very popular and famous. So let's talk about the history of Pike Place Market and then we'll talk about some very cool and unusual hauntings. By the beginning of the 20th century, Seattle had grown from 42,000 to 80,000 people. There was a terrific demand for produce, meats, and other goods from nearby farmers. Farmers brought their fruits, vegetables, eggs, dairy products, and meat in wagons and by ferry from islands. But at the time, they didn't sell directly to the people. Instead, wholesalers sold the goods from warehouses. Farmers didn't fare too well from this. Sometimes they made only a small amount of profit, but most of the time they broke even or sometimes even lost money. A few years later, from 1906 to 1907, there was a lot of price gouging going on from the warehouses. Residents became upset at the high prices, and farmers were upset because they weren't making more money just because the prices were being raised. It got really bad by the summer of 1907, so City Councilman Thomas Reveal came up with an idea of having a public marketplace where farmers could sell straight to the consumer without a middleman. The public market opened on August 17, 1907, with the first farmer selling out in just minutes. By the end of the first week, there were 70 wagons lined up along Pike Place, which was a wooden roadway connecting Western Avenue and First Street. This became so popular that stalls were added in 1910. Soon, Frank Goodwin, who had recently returned from the Klondike Gold Rush with a small fortune, began constructing permanent galleries that are still the center of the market today. Goodwin became official manager of the market in 1926. The market prospered throughout the 1920s and 30s. The market was so popular that not even the Great Depression could bring it down. The farmers already sold the cheapest high quality food in town. So when the Great Depression hit, it actually brought the market more customers, so the market had to be expanded. The market only had one thing interrupt its prosperous earnings, World War II. During the war, more than half of the farmers who sold goods at the market were Japanese immigrants and the U.S. military ordered Japanese Americans to live in internment camps. After this order, the area lost more than half of its farmers. After the war, another villain came for the market, corporate superstores. The mass marketing for large superstores and grocery stores started to bring people away from the open-air style of markets, and the market continued to struggle as people started leaving the old area of town and chose to live in newer areas away from downtown. These newer areas also had supermarkets, so people did not need to go to the market to get their groceries anymore. The buildings in the old downtown area started to fall into disrepair and were in desperate need of renovation. The city wanted to demolish the market area to replace it with modern skyscrapers. But thankfully, not everyone agreed with this plan due to the market's historical significance. A local architect named Victor Steinberg started a Save the Market campaign on November 2, 1971. Voters approved on the plan for a 17-acre historical district to be drawn up. The first ever Starbucks opened here March 30, 1971 at Pike Place and Virginia Street. The market was renovated in 1974. The market has been improving and enlarging over the years. 
Today, it is once again a very popular neighborhood market where both residents and tourists can find quality foods, handmade products, and other goods. It is one of the most visited places in the city with over 600 vendors. Today, you can spend hours shopping and getting fresh seafood, meat, cheese, and vegetables from the farmer's market. You can also find beautiful works of art at the crafts market. They have live entertainment and many restaurants to choose from. I had so much fun looking at their website that now I want to go here and have some fun looking around this historic market. If you ever go to the market, keep an eye out for something other than fine art and food because this market is also popular for some ghostly activity. I found out that the market has been dubbed the most haunted place in Seattle and some would even go as far as to say it's the most haunted in the whole state. And this place has some really unique hauntings. I'm going to start off with what most people in Seattle consider the first ghost of Pike's Place Market, the ghost of Princess Angeline. Princess Angeline was the daughter of Chief Seattle. Chief Seattle was a Suquamish and Duwamish chief living in what is now the city of Seattle. And I hope I said those tribe names right and I apologize if I said them wrong. Even though the city was named after him, the U.S. sent the Indian tribes out of their land to reservations in 1855 with the signing of the Point Elliot Treaty. Princess Angeline refused to leave and ignored the order. She lived in a cabin next to the water. She made money by doing laundry and selling her handwoven baskets. She was an elderly woman at this point, and wherever she would walk around town, she was seen with a red handkerchief over her head with a shawl around her shoulders, and she also walked slowly using a cane. The settlers in the area grew to respect her and let her live in town, and she became a beloved figure of the community, being named Princess Angeline. She passed away at 85, and the residents chipped in to make sure that she had a nice funeral at the Church of Our Lady of God Hope, and they created a custom casket for her that was in the shape of a canoe. She was buried at Lakeview Cemetery on Capitol Hill. Today, the market stands on the spot of her old cabin. Ever since the market was built, people have reported seeing her ghost. When she is seen, she walks with her distinct cane and people believe that she is a real person. That is until she disappears in front of them. Her spirit has also been seen in different color variations, glowing white at first, then changing to lavender. Some have also said that she is the reason for pink and blue orbs that dart around the marketplace. She has also been seen holding the hand of a young boy. People see her most when they walk around the wooden column that is in the center of the market on the lower level. The area has cold spots, and when people take photos by the column, they sometimes catch strange light anomalies. One room on the upper floor is called the Goodwin Library. This room was once the home office for Pike Place market developer Frank Goodwin. His nephew Arthur Goodwin helped Frank develop the market, and when Frank passed away, Arthur took over as market director. Both Frank and Arthur's ghosts have been seen in the market. Frank likes to walk around the market in an early 1900s style suit. He seems to be interested in what the vendors are selling because when he is seen, he's perusing the shelves. Arthur's ghost has been seen looking down on the market from the windows of the old developer's office. He also has been seen swinging a golf club as if he is practicing his putting skills near his old desk. 
The market has an urban legend of a ghost called the Fat Lady Barber. The legend says that in the 1950s, a lady barber used to sing men to sleep using lullabies while she cut their hair. After the men fell asleep, she would rifle through their pockets and steal money from them. Karma might have come for her because one day when the market was being renovated, the floor gave out under the barber stool and the fall to the floor below killed her. Now people who work in that same shop report the disembodied sounds of a woman singing lullaby. And men cleaning up at night in the shop have reported the feeling of their hair being pulled. The market has many shops, but what better shop to have some strange paranormal activity than the magic shop? Sheila's magic shop has a ghost story that I have never heard of before. Apparently, there is a spirit of a woman who is attached to a crystal ball. This crystal ball haunts whatever shop it is placed in. The crystal ball used to be in a shop named Pharaoh's Treasure. One day, a woman walked into the shop and wanted to trade her crystal ball for a scarab. As the shop owner went to take the ball from the woman, she warned the store owner that the spirit of Madame Nora was inside the crystal ball. The owner didn't give it another thought until strange things started happening only a few days after it arrived in his store. Things began to move on their own and go missing only to turn up in random places. The owner quickly gave the ball to the magic shop and it has been there ever since, along with the ghostly activity of Madame Nora. She will even show herself in the crystal ball as people pass by, but when they look back, she's usually gone. The Beat Emporium has the ghost of a young boy. He likes to play pranks on the staff, like opening and closing the cash register to make them jump. His apparition has been seen playing around the counter, and things go missing often. Once during a renovation, a basket full of beads were found sealed behind a wall that had not been touched for a long time, yet it had new beads mixed in with old ones. Some people believe that the ghost boy took the beads and had a secret hiding place inside the wall so he could take them out and play with them when everyone was gone for the day. His apparition has also been seen in the puppet shop and sometimes puppets move on their own, which makes people think it's the ghost boy playing with them, which I would freak out. I don't like moving dolls or moving puppets. That always freaks me out. There are two ghosts who are not getting along in the afterlife. At a Greek deli named Mr. D's, the owner and staff have claimed that they have seen and heard two ghosts fighting each other inside the walk-in freezer. This encounter has scared many employees, and some refuse to go down to the freezer area alone. There is a ghost that hates a certain book inside of the Shakespeare and Company bookstore. The same book was found on the floor every morning. The staff would pick up the book and place it back on the shelf, and the next morning it would be found on the floor again. The weird thing was that it was the same book, and no one ever bought this while other books of the same title were bought around the book on the shelf. Maybe it was because the book started to look a bit ragged from being dropped on the floor night after night. Eventually, the book completely fell apart and had to be removed. Pike Place Market is so haunted that they even do ghost tours during spooky season. I have a link to the ghost tours down below if you'd like to check that out. Another interesting location in Seattle is the Butterworth Building, located at 1921 First Avenue next to Pike Place Market, and it is located in the Pike Place Public Market Historic District. While the name itself might sound sweet, it was actually a mortuary. The ER and Sons Mortuary opened here in October of 1903. ER Butterworth had Seattle's first mortuary building, and he handled all death-related services. They also sold coffins inside the building. 
The building had the first elevator on the west coast, but it was used for moving bodies. The mortuary operated here until the Buttersworth moved the business to a larger area in 1923. The building is on a hill, and it has three stories on the First Avenue side and five stories on the Post Alley side. The top floor had three flats for employees. The next floor down was the showroom where people could select coffins. The main showroom displayed adult-sized coffins and a separate room was used to display children-sized coffins. There was also a room displaying women's burial garments, a reception room, and a consulting room. The next floor down was the main floor and it was on ground level with First Avenue. It had private offices, morgues, an embalming room, and a utilities room to store things like rugs, pedestals, and canopies. There was also a funeral chapel that could hold 150 mourners on the main floor and another 50 up in the balcony. The finest coffins were shown on this level in a special showroom. The next floor down is below First Avenue but above Post Alley. It had fireproof vaults where bodies were stored until families decided what to do with them. This took time. Sometimes if people would die in the winter, the ground was too frozen to dig anything up, so sometimes bodies had to wait in there until it was time to bury them. The basement is level with Post Alley, and this is where stables for horses were, along with the funeral wagons. Now, as you can tell, this is a very big building. All the upper floors have been empty for a long time since the Buttersworth left, but the basement and stockroom has been home to Kell's Irish Pub and Restaurant since 1983. Now that you've heard the history of the building, it's not shocking to find out that it has some really active haunts. There is a ghost of a little girl with red hair seen here. She loves to play pranks on adult guests and workers, but what she really wants to do is play with children her own age. During the daytime, the restaurant lets kids eat inside, and the little red-haired girl interacts with living children. It is said that she can manipulate things around her, even bring out old toys out of nowhere for children to play with her. When workers find these vintage toys just sitting inside the restaurant, they have no idea where they could have come from. The only explanation is that the little red-headed girl must bring them along with her to play. The restaurant has an old Guinness mirror that hangs on the wall and it's haunted by a ghost named Charlie. Charlie will appear as if he is looking out of the mirror, staring at guests. He is most likely to be seen when bands are performing because he seems to love the music. Other apparitions of men and women in late 1800s and early 1900s outfits have been seen all around the restaurant. Voices, footsteps, loud laughing, and even screams have been heard from the empty rooms above the restaurant. Objects moved by unseen hands. Glasses have slid across bars and tables only to smash on the floor. For the most part, the ghosts in the pub seem to be happy and they like to soak up the positive atmosphere of the restaurant and the living around them. I'm going to finish off our tour by talking about Seattle's Underground, Yesler's Way, and as well as Pioneer Square. So just to give you a little wayfinding, these areas are very close together, so it might be sounding like I'm jumping around a little bit, but in retrospect, they're very close together. For instance, Seattle's Underground is pretty much underneath Yesler Way, but you'll find out when I talk more about it right now in the history. South and east of Pike's Place Market is another historic part of the city called Pioneer Square. This part of Seattle is where the city settlement started in 1852. The name was chosen to honor Chief Seattle, who became friends with one of the settlers, Doc Maynard. Henry Yesler chose this settlement for the Puget Sound first steam-powered lumber mill. The mill was built on the pier at the end of Yesler Way. 
The Mills Cookhouse and Yesler's Pavilion became Seattle's first center for social activity. This area became the business district. On June 6, 1889, a pot of glue that was being heated on a gas flame in a cabinet shop erupted into flames. The fire spread in all directions, at first unnoticed, going through basements and under wooden, planked streets and sidewalks. Eventually, it broke through to the surface and destroyed much of the business district and waterfront. The Great Seattle Fire destroyed between 25 and 30 square blocks. Amazingly, there were no reports of death from the fire. Business owners vowed to quickly rebuild on the remains of the burned-out buildings. However, it was decided that all new buildings had to be built of stone and brick masonry to prevent more fires from happening. They also tried to solve the problem of the awful muddy streets that occurred during the rainstorms. The solution was to build at least eight-foot-tall walls on both sides of the streets, fill in the space with dirt, and then pave over the streets. But this made the streets one story higher than the original sidewalks and first floors of the buildings that had already been rebuilt. New sidewalks were built to connect the raised streets to the businesses. This left tunnels between the old sidewalk and the new ones. The underground of the buildings and the old sidewalks were abandoned. Seattle saw the population of the city jump up by about 100,000 due to the Yukon Gold Rush in 1897. Seattle became the gateway to Alaska. The rush died down after about 10 years. At this time, the underground floors were condemned by the city due to fears of plagues. Upscale businesses relocated uptown, and Pioneer Square and its underground became a place for homeless, speakeasies, brothels, opium dens, and gambling halls. Fast forward to the 1950s when Seattle citizen Bill Spindle started a movement to save the rundown Pioneer Square area. Spindle and about 600 volunteers gathered the historical information of the area. He was asked to give tours in 1965 by the Chamber of Commerce. In May of 1970, the Seattle City Council named 20 square blocks of Pioneer Square as a new historic district. Tours are still given today, along with ghost tours. Many old rooms that were once businesses are reportedly haunted in the underground. The teller cage of the old bank can still be seen in, and the area is really active. When in operation, the bank was open 24 hours a day for men to trade in their gold for cash. Many ghost hunters have recorded EVPs, and when ghost hunters ask what's your name or who's here, they normally get the reply of Edward or sometimes Eddie. Edward sometimes appears to people on historical and paranormal tours. When people see him, they describe a man that is tall and in suspenders with a black top hat and having an impressive handlebar mustache. There is a theory that he could have been a bank teller who was shot and killed during a robbery in the 1800s, but I had a hard time finding any real evidence to back that up. Regardless of what he did for work, he is the most seen ghost in the area. A woman in an 1800s-style dress has been seen walking through the area only to disappear into a wall or a shop that she just entered. The most active area around the underground is Pioneer Square. During the Pioneer days, this area would have had lots of very rough-and-tumble kind of people. Lots of bar fights between gold miners and cowboys led to shootouts that left men dead in the streets. Homeless men and women were regularly ignored by people who had any form of money, and they would die on the street and be left there. 
Another thing that happened in the area were shootouts between cops and businessmen. Between 1890 and 1902, 20 shootouts had been recorded and almost always leaving behind at least one victim. People who have gone on underground tours have caught many EVPs of voices of both men and women answering direct questions and talking as if they are carrying on a conversation with another departed person. Some ghosts are intelligent, while others glide through the tunnels not paying much attention to any of the living around them. This leaves investigators to think that there are a lot of residual hauntings mixed in with some active intelligent spirits. People have reported hearing disembodied voices, screams, whistling, footsteps, moaning, and even gunshots. Strange light anomalies show up to the naked eye and on camera along with orbs. People have also heard the sound of knocking, door slamming, bangs, and other strange sounds. On what is now street level today, the residual hauntings are still very active. There are reports that some people have even watched a robbery from the 1800s take place in front of their eyes. They even heard distant gunfire before the whole scene vanished before them. If you stay in the Pioneer Square Hotel, you might have strange experiences with a ghost dog that likes to jump up on guest beds as if it wants to sleep with them. A little girl also wanders throughout the hotel and likes to comb women's hair. There is a notorious tree that is haunted by a man who was falsely accused of murder and was hung from a tree. In 1882, a man named George Pine was already in a cell in the jail when two more men were added to his cell. These men had just killed a popular man in town named George Reynolds. A mob formed outside the jail and stormed in and grabbed the two men responsible, but they also grabbed George thinking that he too had something to do with Reynolds' death. They lynched all three men on the tree in Pioneer Square. Pine tried to claim his innocence, but the mob would not listen and they hung him from the tree. Now people say that you can see the figure of George hanging from the tree at night. Some 911 calls have even been made by people thinking that a man truly did just hang themselves in the tree. But when police come, they can't find anyone hanging from the tree. Ghost hunters that come to the area have received EVPs saying things like, I'm innocent and you killed an innocent man. We are going to finish off our tour at Yesler Way. Yesler Way is adjacent to Pioneer Square. One of the earliest buildings in Seattle was Henry Yesler's sawmill. He came to Seattle with the goal of building a steam-powered mill. His mill started cutting lumber in March of 1853. The mill was important to the economy of the new town. Yesler built the first wharf and lumber was moved to the mill down Mill Street. The sawmill's cookhouse was used as a dining hall, meeting room, and courthouse. Mill Street today is named Yesler Way. Yesler Way was a skid row. This name was used by the lumberjacks of the Pacific Northwest. Teams of oxen and horses hauled cut timber and the roads were greased with bacon grease or whatever was available to help the logs slide over the road to the sawmills. Later during the depression of the 1930s, the term changed to skid row to describe neighborhoods in the U.S. where people had fallen on hard times. This is also where the idiom hit the skids came from to describe someone down on their luck. Yesler Way runs east to west and it marks the dividing point between two different efforts to lay out the city in the 1850s. Arthur Denny's plan to the north followed the shape of the coastline and Doc Maynard's plan to the south had an east to west layout. 
Today, Yesler Way is haunted with lots of residual energy. Apparitions of men and women in 1800s clothing have been seen wandering up and down the streets, only to disappear mid-stride. Merchant Cafe and Saloon is a popular haunted spot on Yesler Way. This restaurant claims to be the oldest restaurant in Seattle in its original location. This building was rebuilt in 1890 after the original building burned down in the Great Seattle Fire. It was a saloon with a brothel upstairs that was popular for miners at the time. Today's owners have restored the building and apparently the ghosts have stuck around too. One claim involves a painting on the far back wall titled Oriental Dancing Girl. The owner took some pictures of the painting, but revealed in one of the photos was a different scene behind the woman. Instead of a black background, a bedroom scene was revealed. Several pictures were taken from different angles, and apparently the theory is that it's just a reflection, so this had been debunked. Other ghostly encounters by employees involved a little girl and boy who haunted the basement. Legend has it that two children died in a fire here in 1938. People claim to hear children laughing, see shadow figures in the basement, and the two children like to play games on the staff. An apparition of a woman, possibly a lady of the night, has been seen by guests and employees, and men claim to hear a woman whispering in their ears. Doors open and close on their own, objects are moved often, and bathroom faucets turn on and off on their own. After doing all of my research, I have come to the conclusion that the state of Washington is a very haunted place. I know I will be checking out some of these haunted locations in Washington someday. guys had fun checking out all these haunted locations in Washington State with me. I had so much fun. A big thank you to Master Twisted from Instagram for sending me this really good location. I knew that there were haunted places, but I had so much fun finding out all of this information about Washington State. It's easy with the modern technology to get caught up in thinking that everything is new, but you forget how old some of these places actually are. And I think it's important to take the time to learn the history of locations so you can really appreciate everything that much more. I wanted to make an announcement before I end this episode. My next episode, when I come back from my trip, I'm going to be gone for a long time, but when I come back, but when I come back, I am doing a listener story episode. If you have a true paranormal story to tell, go ahead and email it to me at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com and let me know if I can use your name or not because I'll keep it anonymous if you don't want your name out there. But if you send me your story, I will read it on the next episode. So that's the plan for the next episode after I get back from my trip, of course. But I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. Thank you all so much for being here. I hope everyone stays healthy and safe and all that stuff. And I hope that my fellow Americans had a good 4th of July this year. Please don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep up with all of my adventures and my historically haunted content. Links to all of those pages are down below. Thanks so much again. I'll see you guys back here real soon. Bye, everyone. I have never been shy about talking about my struggles with dyslexia, but I also think it is really important for people to know the signs so that they can get help. 
Dyslexia is a learning disability that is not well known, but it is way more common than you might think. In fact, one in 10 people are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some of the common signs is late talking, learning new words slowly, writing letters backwards, and a delay in reading and spelling. There is no cure for this, and although it's challenging, it does not mean that we are stupid because dyslexia does not affect intelligence. It is better for children to get diagnosed early so that they can get accommodations they need in school. If you are an adult and think that you might have it, it is never too late to ask for help. One website I find helpful is dyslexiaaid.org, where you can find out some great information. Understanding and educating others about dyslexia is just as important as diagnosing someone with it.